And now I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Mr. Alfredo Corchado. Alfredo Corchado is the Mexico Bureau Chief for the Dallas Morning News. He has reported on everything from the disappearance of women in Juarez to the exodus of Mexico's middle class to the United States. Over the years, he has exposed government corruption and the reach of Mexican drug traffickers into U.S. communities, as well as the perils journalists face in Mexico. Please give a very warm welcome to Alfredo Corchado. <laughs> Hi, good evening. Um, I, uh, I want to thank uh, Gregory, who's not here t uh, tonight, but I, I, uh, I saw him in Mexico City last year before, the, before we knew when the, when the book was out, and he said, you got to do something at Zocalo, so uh, I'm delighted to be here, and thank Dulce, also a few friends. I, I wasn't here earlier, so I'm not uh, sure who's here, but I, I saw Eileen Truax, who I was just here a few weeks ago to present her book, The Dreamers, excellent book. And if you don't have a copy, please get a copy. It's, uh, my only criticism of Dreamers is it has to be in English at some point. And I also want to thank uh, Ernesto Torres, who's uh, shared much of his journey in Mexico. And a true, I think you make Guadalajara very, very proud. Uh, the only thing, I think the reason why he's here tonight is I, I promised him tequila, and, and, and we have no tequila. <clears throat> but. Uh, you know, I've been, I've been touring for the last couple of weeks, and I always kind of felt that sooner or later I, I was going to lose it uh, emotionally, because it's, uh, aside from being in a, in a rewarding tour to, to see uh, people become fans of, of Midnight in Mexico, it's also an emotional journey. And I kind of felt like, okay, I didn't lose it in Texas, but I will surely lose it in California, because this is, is in many ways, it's, it's, it's coming home. Uh, for me, I imagine what it what it feels like for me as a as a farm worker who who came here as a child and, and picked the fields of the San Joaquin Valley, and now I'm back presenting a book. Uh, it's it's an incredible feeling. So thank you for coming, and I I stand before tonight with uh, saludos from Mexico City, the great exporter of culture and humanity and greetings from El Paso, the uh, Ellis Island of the Southwest, something that I think Angelinos know all too well. I'm here to talk about Midnight in Mexico, the, the, that's the name of the book. But first, let me, let me just get this confession out. I, I get a contract from Penguin in January of 2010, and they said, you know, write a book about what it's like being on the front rows of, of history over the last 20 years for the Dallas Morning News. And after all the celebrating and friends hugging and so forth, you know, I, and after all the disbelief was gone, I realized that I had no idea how to write a book. And that I'm, I've been used to telling other people's stories, not my own story. I'm always kind of comfortable being on the sidelines and being a reporter and kind of giving people's opinions. So after weeks, months of struggling, I, I was at the Woodrow Wilson Center. I had this fellowship to, to do research. And I think it was after the, uh, the sixth month of researching, researching, and I kept, I'm not writing anything. I have a permanent writer's block. I, out of desperation, I went to El Paso, returned to El Paso, and I went to see uh, a friend of mine, Benjamin Alida Science. Many of you probably know he's a, a fiction writer, and has won probably every award this year, including the Penn Faulkner. 
But I sat down with uh, Ben and I said, um, listen, I, Penguin made a mistake. I have no idea how to write a book. I, I, tell me how to give the money back to them. Uh, <laughs> and he, he helped me find my voice by asking me one simple question. He says, OK, fine, I'll, I'll show you how to do all that. But let me, just, let me ask you, what do you think about when I say the word Mexico? And the first thing out of my mind was the rains. And he says, you know, what about the rains? And we were at a, re a little restaurant in, in Kern, I don't know if you guys know El Paso, but it's Kern Place, right near UTEP. And I, I took all these napkins out, because I wasn't ready to, to write, but I, was, you know, I didn't have my notepad. So I'm just taking all these napkins, and I'm writing and writing. And this is, I, I know I, I promised Lucy I wouldn't read, but, but uh, this is kind of what I, what I wrote that afternoon. And it's just a couple of paragraphs. And I, I hope it, it kind of sets the, the mood for the night. <clears throat> it's part one. When summer rains fall on Mexico, all is forgiven. The raindrops cleanse the metropolitan Mexico City sky, sweeping away the smog that traps 20 million people in a suffocating embrace, bringing everything into sharp focus over the southern edge of the city. Two Hulkin volcanoes stand guard. According to an ancient legend, they are Smoking Mountain lying next to his lover, woman in white. Washing away the smog, the rain reveals them on rare occasions, the same way it swept the desert sky of my Durango decades ago. The cleansing is una limpia, the ancient rite, healing a scarred, misunderstood land, always on the, cusp, on the cusp of greatness, a country writing to free itself from the curse of history and geography. For better or for worse, tucked in the indifferent shadow of my adopted homeland, the United States. The moment of forgiveness is fleeting. The hole in heaven closes. And that, once I, I, I wrote that, I kind of saw the book. And I just started, and I kept writing and writing and writing. And Angela Cocherga, who's, I haven't introduced yet, but Angela uh, <clears throat> is both my colleague and who's been through this perilous journey as a reporter also for more than 25 years. And, and my, I'm not sure how to say it these days, my partner or my significant other. Uh, <clears throat> I often say that, that Midnight in Mexico is really a book about redemption, reinvention, and my love for family, um, the, the homeland, and, and the love story uh, for Angela. It, uh, it's a poem for Angela. When Carlos Fuentes says the border is a scar, <clears throat> Angela and I, and I think millions more here, are that wound. As a native of Mexico City, <clears throat> Angel, you've introduced me to El DFE and inspired me the possibility of my return. But that night in 2007, July of 2007, you were with me when a U.S. agent called me and told me there was a threat against a U.S. journalist. Three names came up, and I was one of them. That night, as you slept, I kept pondering one question in my head. How did I go wrong? Why do I feel betrayed by Mexico? And I wonder whether my mother was right that Mexico was her burden, not ours. I had so many questions as I stared out at the, at the lights of La Torre Mayor, and the only thing that was clear was that it was literally midnight in Mexico. Angela, <clears throat> then and now, you remain the, the, the light of dawn, even amid the darkness that fell in our beloved country. <clears throat> I have to also tell you one other confession. I've been doing all these talks and book talks and so forth, and this is the first time I use an iPad. Because uh, they, they told me to do more of a lecture, and, and so I, you know, if you see me kind of 
uh, stop me or, or just tell me to get a tequila and chill out, and I, and I will. <clears throat> but that's why I picked the title Midnight in Mexico, a personal journalistic narrative about a reporter with the front row seat for the Dallas Morning News, witnessing the most tumultuous time in my homeland. On paper, I'm called a foreign correspondent, but that's a term that I constantly wrestle with because I'm not so sure I am one. Mexico has never been foreign to me. Mexico has always been personal. I'm a proud son of Mexico. I was born in San Luis de Cordero, Durango, and like many towns, tradition dictated that our, that our ancestors bury the umbilical cord of every newborn to remind us, especially those destined to leave, of a place of first, of first sunrises and sunsets. My father was a bracero, a guest worker, who swept sweat, along with the millions of other Mexicans, helped change the face of the United States. As a young boy, I didn't even, I didn't even know I had a father. Uh, but I knew that every year, come fall, when the leaves started falling, a, a man would show up who, to me, was like my Santa Claus with, the, with a sombrero hat. And I guess to, to make up for time and distance, he left the, Cal the fields of California and would stop by in El Paso, Texas, and, and shop at Tony Lama. And he would pick up these little boots, and you know, he would show up. And I say that story because oftentimes today as a reporter, when I, when I travel the countryside, I see all these abandoned communities. And I meet children and teenagers who don't even know they, had a, they have a father and who have never met, met their father. As a kid, I came kicking and screaming to this country. We were forced to immigrate in part because of a family tragedy. My mother sacrificed everything she knew and loved about her homeland to give us an opportunity, the possibility of a better life. Mexico, she said, felt uneven. Its energy sucked away by people going north. I, of course, disagree with her and vowed to one day return. As a child, I worked alongside my mother in the fields of the San Joaquin Valley. My parents were members of the United Farm Workers led by Cesar Chavez. And I still see her, and I, I was reminded today as, as I was driving, uh, of that June in, in 1968, when Robert F. Kennedy was killed, um, assassinated here in L.A. But I, I, I can still imagine her, you know, in the fields and the radar dangling, the, the, the radar dangling that day, and my mother just stopping us and saying, "Shh, escuchen." And it was it was uh, the words of RFK: "Some people see the way things are and ask why not. I dream of things that never were and ask why not and, and ask why not." Uh, <clears throat> that became kind of like a mantra for us, you know, when, when, um, when we were questioned, why did we leave Mexico? You know, we, we had a nice home, we had a store, uh, we had toys, and suddenly we're surrounded by fields. Uh, <clears throat> finally, at the, as, a, as a sophomore in high school, I, I gave up on school and I dropped out. And my mother was devastated because, again, she had sacrificed everything she knew. I, was, I think I was 16 at the time. And she, um, she says, you know, you're the oldest of nine. It's your job to set, set the tone, set, become a role model for the rest of your brothers. And I kept telling her, well, you know, my dream in life is not to get an education. I mean, she, uh, I think my mother had a sixth grade education. My father had a third grade education. I said, I'm already in high school. I've already exceeded. And I said, my dream is to someday have a 1978 Camaro with a T-top, you know? <laughs> because I'm a huge, at, at that time, I was a huge Batman fan. Uh, 
And my mother, you know, it's uh, like the wisdom kicked in. And she said, okay, let's, let's do this. Uh, you, you know, you do three things, and I, we will give you the down payment to any car you want. And we will also pay the first uh, three months. But you have to do, you have to, one, leave California. We, uh, the first thing my father did when he became a Brasero was uh, my, my aunt, who was like the pioneer in our family, said, you need to, buy a, uh, you need to own a, a piece of property. And so my father bought a, a home in El Paso that we were renting. But she said, my mother says, you know, every, every Christmas we go to El Paso, I see more Mexicans wearing ties than in the San Joaquin Valley. People here, they're out in the fields. So leave California. Two, promise to get an education. And three, do not get married until you have an education. At that time, you know, I was kind of looking for the easy way out. I was dating the rancher's daughter, and I thought, <laughs> I'll get married, and someday I'll be the, uh, the mero mero, el mayordomo. Uh, <clears throat> So for 10 days, here I am, you know, car, girl, car, girl, or love, car, love, car, and I picked the car. <laughs> and I remember driving uh, the uh, 99, and then it becomes five, and coming through LA on the way to El Paso and listening to the Hotel California the whole way, I was homesick. But my goal, you know, when I realized where El Paso was, right on the border with, with Juarez, I thought, that's my goal, you know. It gets me closer to, to return to Mexico. Because I miss the vibrancy of Mexico. I miss the, the colors, the people, the corn on the cob, the fig trees, the music, the songs that make the soul weep. You know, I, I didn't realize when I was walking in here that I had Javier Solis on my, on my iPod. <laughs> um, and the best way to, to return was to be a reporter. Um, as a 13-year-old working out in the fields, there's, there's still an image that, that uh, stays in my mind. It was, um, it was uh, TV reporters who came out to ask children, or teenagers or, or kids, underage kids, what it was like to work in the fields without sanitation, without water. And this guy comes up to me. My mother at the time was trying to make me look older, so she would put this hat on and large shirt. And these guys, you know, these reporters, I mean, they're pretty savvy. And they said, no, this guy is BSing. He's not, he's not 15. So he comes up to me and says, you know, what's, what's it like to be in the fields? What's it like to, to work um, all day out in the sun? And that image always stayed in my mind when, when, when they asked me, what do you want to do uh, with the rest of your life? You know, when I took the aptitude test in, at El Paso Community College, and I said, I want to be a hairdresser because I wanted to be Warren Beatty, and, and I love the movie Shampoo. <laughs> And the guy said, you know, you should, you should really consider doing something in, uh, like a foreign diplomat. You, you have a thing for, uh, uh, for languages. Maybe, <clears throat> maybe become a foreign correspondent. And when I realized that someone would pay me to go back to Mexico, um, I thought, bingo, you know. When I told my parents I was returning to Mexico as a foreign correspondent, my father in particular made me promise I would never cover drug trafficking. He said, narcos do not know the meaning of the word perdón, forgiveness. And we, we had this little restaurant, Freddy's Cafe. Um, my mother's cooking was a sensation. And the, this, this kind of shadowy man comes up to my dad and says, we will invest $300,000, $500,000 into your business. And you can open another Freddy's or maybe open more Freddy's along the U.S.-Mexico border. And I thought, wow, we hit pay dirt, you know. I, we were, uh, again, farmers from California, we had no idea what the border 
how the water operated. But when my dad said, fine, that sounds like a hell of an offer, the, the guy said, it'll all worked out, work out well if you don't tell the authorities a thing. And if you do, we know where your kids go to school. And he started naming the, the names of the schools. And right there, my father said, you know what, this is not going to go anywhere. Um, but it, but I, I think by that time, you know, when I'd say, hey, I'm going back to Mexico, he said, just don't mess with these people. Um, and that was, my, that was my goal, was not to, to report on, on drug traffic. I mean, I actually made that promise to them, that I would do everything else, you know, right culture, music, immigration, et cetera. Uh, and it helped that I came of age as a reporter on the U.S.-Mexico border, witnessing transformative times in two nations. Freddy's Cafe was just three blocks from the International Bridge. It was a place hopping with political activism on both sides. It was an eclectic crowd from smugglers to politicians. The political actors ranged from Francisco Barrio Terrazas, who at the time was uh, the candidate for the PAN, and, and inspired Mexicans to imagine a Mexico accountable to its people. One other visitor I remember serving was uh, uh, the First Lady of Arkansas, Hillary Clinton, who in the early 1990s was campaigning for her husband, Bill, running for president. I remember I served her menudo that morning, and she seemed to like it until someone explained to her what the ingredients were. <laughs> She didn't take another bite after that. <laughs> Throughout the years of reporting in and around Mexico since 1986, I have witnessed the young and the old, men and women, take the streets of Ciudad Juarez, of Guanajuato, San Luis Potosí, Monterrey, and of course, Mexico City. It felt like a people's revolution. I've lost count to the number of times I have walked back and forth from El Zócalo, or El Ángel, feeling just a little more hopeful about Mexico's future. It was a family affair. One time, uh, as a reporter, uh, I started off with the El Paso Herald Post. I remember uh, the Panistas had taken over the International Bridge between El Paso and Juarez. And that morning, I, w I wake up and I see this, this woman handing out burritos. And I looked up closely, and it was my mother. Uh, and she made a vow that morning that no protester would, would go hungry. Among those fighting for democracy was a young man named Felipe Calderon. He had much more hair and big round glasses. I also remember later uh, Angela and I following Vicente Fox through California as he, as he campaigned with immigrants here. Um, we've also witnessed uh, the big turnout in, in uh, El DF and El Ángel. We have witnessed the plight of the people always coming closer, but not close enough. And yes, today, there are many reasons to be down about Mexico and reasons to blame just about everyone else. They, the government, blame the media especially the foreign press, for our so-called negative coverage in Mexico, as though somehow we are responsible for the drug war, the killing and disappearance of more than 100,000 people since 1986. And that number is, I mean, people say 100,000, 100, 80,000, 80, 80, 120,000. The truth is no one really knows, because I, I think one of the stories that we, we have missed as journalists is the, the number of disappeared. I mean, there's so many graves, clandestine graves in Mexico, that I think it'll take years before we really know the, the numbers. They blame us as though we are responsible that Mexico's conviction rate is less than 5%. That means that 95% of the times when people commit a crime, they get away with it. And that, that explains why there's so many young kids who turn to drug trafficking uh, or, or, or become halcones or somehow associated with organized crime. Not that every young Mexican is, is a drug trafficker. I don't want to leave that impression. But when you look at places like Ciudad Juarez, places like, like Nuevo Laredo, you wonder why are so many teenagers in, involved in this trade. 
Uh, there's a saying in Sinaloa, and I know there's close ties between Sinaloa and L.A., so maybe you, you've heard it before, but it's prefiero vivir 50 años como rey que, que prefiero vivir cinco años como rey que 50 años como buey. Uh, you, guys, you guys got it. <laughs> Mexicans blame the rich. How can they possibly live in a country with a poverty rate of more than 45% and still claim the richest man in the world? They blame the crumbling education system, the tax code, the judicial system, the cops, the unions. In Mexico, they kill you twice, once usually with the bullet, and then the second time through character assassination. They smear your name, reputation, spreading rumors about you, that you were corrupt or involved with someone else's wife, and on and on and on. In Mexico, they kill you once or twice because they can. Recently, we ran a story in the Dallas Morning News about the wife of Aceta, who showed me pictures of her husband. And all over his body, you saw tattoos depicting his love for Mexico. It, it kind of said, hecho en Mexico, amor por Mexico. And I asked this woman, um, is your, does your husband really love Mexico? I mean, it sounds like your husband really likes Mexico. Por qué? And she said, I told him the same thing, and he just smiled. And I told him he loves Mexico porque Mexico no castiga a quien mata a su propia gente. Mexico doesn't punish those who kill their own people. The husband replied by beating her up in front of her children and said, Tienes razón, you are right. She can't complain because the region she calls home, San Luis Potosí, is controlled by her husband's relatives, all key members, not just of the Zetas, which is a paramilitary group that, uh, <clears throat> that controls big regions of Mexico, and also one of the most dangerous groups, but of the local and state police. So like thousands, she's now looking for political asylum in the United States. Obviously, and you know this too well, Mexicans blame the United States as too hypocritical and arrogant. They blame the culture of high-power weapons, the banks stuffed with dirty money, the demand for illicit drugs, even as 17 states now consider legalizing mar medical marijuana. They blame the United States for putting up a fence along parts of the U.S.-Mexico border, as if a fence and drones can help absolve us from our responsibility, from ourselves, as if a fence can separate us from them. They are us, we are they. And yet, as I stand here this afternoon, I must confess I have moments of doubt, but I remain hopeful about Mexico. You see, perhaps the most revealing transformation that I have witnessed in all my more than 20 years of reporting in Mexico has been the following. Mexicans' willingness to stop blaming everyone but themselves. In a resilient, noble, and generous nation, that is perhaps the most hopeful, refreshing evidence that Mexico is really changing, that they're refusing to be victims of history, that history has finally caught up with them. We're learning that corruption is not cultural or part of our bloodlines, our genes, as many would lead you to believe, but more of a lack of rule of law, something this country faced not too long ago. But not for a single minute am I naive to recognize the magnitude of the tremendous social security and economic challenges that remain ahead. I'm certainly not naive to tell you that the return of the pre may be seen as a return of the past. I'm the first to admit that driving from my home in La Condesa in Mexico City last summer to the headquarters of, of the PRI was one of the most painful trips I've taken in a while. It seemed like the rascals were back and with the copete, you know. <laughs> Whether the vote was a cry to return to the past or it simply represented the best choice at the time, that is a question I, I leave to you. 
I know as a journalist, the next six years will be fascinating to see just how much Mexico has changed, how much the people can actually keep the government accountable. I'm mindful that the changes of what I'm talking about will take years, so many that I may not even get to witness them beyond the vestiges of what I see. But I will tell you that I'm hopeful because people are finally laying claim to their homeland in small and big ways because they imagine a Mexico that can be. The mothers who turn up routinely in front of judicial institutions in Ciudad Juarez to demand answers. The patrons at Maximo, at Bistro Maxico in La Roma, just three blocks from, from where I live. You guys have probably heard the story. This is the, uh, it's now called the famous Lady Profeco. Uh, <clears throat> this is the, the daughter of, of the man in charge of Profeco, the Consumer Protection Agency, which also regulates restaurants. She uh, shows up at the bistro, she couldn't get her favorite seat and, and, uh, or her favorite table, and she starts uh, this hissy fit and threatens to have her father shut down the place. Patrons recorded her and posted it on YouTube. She apologized, he resigned. Instead of blaming Mexicans now shaming their authorities by highlighting their incompetence, their indifference, their corruption for the world to see. But yes, there are two Mexicos. I mean, just like that's a hopeful sign, I mean, I will tell you another one that's much more closer to me and much more personal. Samuel, who works with me as a driver in Mexico City, uh, <clears throat> a year ago calls me up and says, Alfredo, I tengo un problemita. There's a small problem. He was driving my car, and I was gonna go get it uh, tuned up, and I said, what's the problemita? And he says, uh, I just got stopped by the, by the cops and they're threatening to take your car to the pound. And I said, well, it sounds like a problemota, you know, like Houston, you know, <laughs> definitely we have a problem. Um, so I show up and, and I said, what, you know, what do you want me to do? He says, cinco. And I thought, okay, cinco means 500 pesos. That's, he wants to pay a 500 peso bribe, which is about 40, $42 or so. I said, okay, you know, it's the way it's done. Show up, I think I had 600 pesos. And, I start talking to the, to the cop and I said, so, you know, what's the problem? How to resolve this? And it's always, well, you know, we can't resolve this uh, easy way. Here's the book. The book says that blah, 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 blah. And I said, okay. And one of the things he said was, if you don't pay the money, uh, you may not see your friend for a while because he's going to end up in prison and it, it could take months, years before you see him again. And I thought, okay, so how do we resolve this? I mean, what's, what will they charge, you know? And he said, it's gonna be at least 10,000 pesos. And I'm like, 10,000 pesos? And I'm looking at somewhere like, what did you mean by five? And then we come down and come down and come down. And he finally says, for us, it'll be 5,000 pesos. I said, look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be honest with you, I, I only have 500 pesos. And the guy says, um, well, you know, we can resolve that. Um, we, there's a bank, like, just two blocks from there. And I said, okay, but I don't know if I have that kind of money. So I take my cell phone out, and I started, instead of, you know, I pretended I was calling someone, but I put the, uh, the video on, and I started kind of taping the whole thing. I said, si, Paco, como estas? You know, pretend to be calling uh, an attorney. Paco, estoy en una situación muy difícil, blah, blah, blah. I need uh, 5,000 pesos. <clears throat> and the whole time I'm taping it. And finally, you know, I said, well, you know, my friend loaned me the money. And he says, well, we will follow you to the bank and their, and their bikes. Uh, and I'm thinking, que, que descarados, you know, how, how blatant can you be? Show up, take the money out of the, uh, the uh, ATM. 
and I'm still taping. And I give the guy the money, and I said, ¿Y con quién tuve el placer? You know, who did I have the pleasure with? And they even give me their names. El Sargento, blah, 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 blah. <clears throat> I take the video, we get in the car, and the guy says, you know, he comes back and, and knocks on the, on the window, and I says, oh, my God, they probably figure it out. And he says, I just want to remind you to please don't let these... Uh... Oh, I mean, the reason why he was stopped somewhere was because he had a... Uh, a what do you call it? Uh, uh, a sticker, a, a, a expired sticker. I said, just make sure that you get the right place because you know, so many people in Mexico can be phony. I'm thinking, wow, you know, the, the gall. <laughs> <laughs> and so we get in the car, and I tell Samuel, I say, hey, and, you know, Samuel, sounded, I mean, he looked devastated. And I said, Samuel, cheer up, man. It's, we, we have it on tape. We'll put it on YouTube. We'll put it on Facebook. We'll put it on Twitter. You know, it'll be out. And he looked at me. He says, you know, no, you, you can't do that. Uh, they know my name. They know my address. They know where I live. And I looked at him, and, and you know, as a reporter, oftentimes you, you feel like you're covering two Mexicos. Uh, the Mexico that's, that's progressing, that's getting better, and the Mexico that's still kind of, as my mother said, still stuck. But I, I remain hopeful because of the families in places like Villa de Salvarcar, the site of the 2010 birthday massacre that awakened the country. The parents continue to fight for justice to avenge the death of their children, the majority of them students, athletes, and they are doing it through the court system. Their star witness, a woman who took a bullet to the head and was left inc incapacitated. But she never forgot the voice or the eyes of the man who shot her and calmly picked him out at a trial. She said, fue él. A new administration is here, and one of the fathers of the victim is a, a man named Adrián Cadena. Uh, <clears throat> and I, I asked him, you know, with the priest back, how do you feel about the future? And he says, you know, the future is uncertain, but that has not stopped me. Parents are still organizing, trying against big odds to rescue the next generation from becoming teenage hitmen. They've organized football games, opened a sports complex, a community center. Just last month, I saw Adrian, and he told me they won the regional championship, beating out a team from Monterrey, in Monterrey. In doing so, Ramon, uh, Adrian tells me he's testing how far Mexicans want change, especially when the TV cameras are off. I will tell you that anytime I feel discouraged about Mexico and its path, all I have to do is return to Villa de Salvarca and I find my voice again. As Adrián has told me countless of times, Mexicans are learning to build a civil society even amid the most dire of circumstances, with the blood of their children, of their loved ones. I'm especially inspired by the courage of my own colleagues on both sides of the border, uh, especially people in Mexico City. Three of the Pulitzers this year went to Mexicans, one of them, Alejandra Chanik, who tested Mexico's transparency laws to gather information that led to stories about corruption at Walmart and helped the New York Times win yet another Pulitzer. Amid the bright spots, however, there are looming shadows. Since democracy arrived in the year 2000, more than 40, some say 100 Mexican colleagues have been disappeared or killed. But for every Mexican journalist threatened, censored, or dead, there is one or two more willing to risk his or her life by crossing the border or meeting somewhere safe to tell us what is going on so that the stories of tens of thousands of people are never forgotten, so that silence does not continue to spread. And I know how cynical we can be as reporters, but at times my colleagues, even those in places like Ciudad Juarez, Nuevo Laredo, Monterrey, or Veracruz, seem to be the most hopeful, even more than the very people we cover. Many of them are women, who are rising with the voice, we will not be denied. 
And I have to tell you here, I mean, <clears throat> I, I've been threatened four times, and, and the last one in 2007 was the one I took seriously. But at no time have I felt that I'm as vulnerable as my, as my colleagues in Mexico. Um, I, was, I'm, I was born in Mexico. Let me, let me just tell you a quick story. Um, this U.S. source who, who, um, who warned me that uh, there was a threat against, against an American journalist, I asked him once, I said, you know, how realistic is it that they would go after an American journalist? And he said, you know, I have good news and bad news. The good news is that cartels do not want more attention, so it's unlikely they will go after an, an American journalist. It, it would threaten their billion-dollar industry. The bad news is that you don't look American. <laughs> and that kind of sent me, like, you know, I need a therapist or something, because I, I didn't know what an American was. <laughs> um, I'm hopeful because as Mexicans on this side of the border are discovering their political might, they're slowly realizing that their political power will go further if they reconnect with the land of their ancestors. I arrived in this country when just a few million Mexicans called the United States home. Today, more than 30 million do the same thing. That's 10% of the U.S. population. Many of us live a dual existence marked by our bicultural, bilingual world. Too often, our natural instinct, once you cross that border, is to shut the door to the next generation. Forget where you came from. But whether or not we speak the language, embrace our roots and heritage, whether we are of Mexican descent, white, black, Asian, there is a growing Mexico that isn't going anywhere. That 2,000-mile border will always be there. I challenge you to think of another country that has more of a daily impact on us than Mexico, whether it's trade, bloodlines, food, music, culture. As Shannon often says, it's our choice whether we make Mexico a problem or a partner. My book, Midnight in Mexico, is about answering my parents' question as to why I insisted on returning to Mexico. It is about searching for that flickering light during the darkest times of the night, walking in the shadow of two countries, constantly bickering and blaming one another. In the end, it's about believing in the promise of a new day. Thank you very much. There was a RAND study a couple of years ago that said uh, that the um, that drug-related violence doesn't actually... The, the, the what? That drug-related violence doesn't actually cross the border um, as much as uh, people perceive that it may or fear that it may. Um, and I was wondering if you had an opinion on that and could comment. A few weeks ago, we covered a story in, in the Dallas Morning News about a, a Mexican attorney who was gunned down uh, right outside Dallas, a very small, I think one of the safest communities in North Texas, South Lake. And it turned out that the people who order his killing was the, uh, members of a Mexican cartel in, in Mexico. But it doesn't happen as much as people think it does. I mean, I, at least I haven't seen it. I mean, there have been examples in El Paso, Laredo, McAllen, obviously Dallas. Um, I think what people are more worried about is the, the spillover of corruption on the U.S. side. Uh, I mean, you, you do see a lot of U.S. officials or authorities who have been... Uh, you know, accused and convicted of corruption. I mean, there are some cases, but yeah, I, I, you know, I, I don't mean to be flippant about this, but I, I, I don't imagine heads rolling um, on, on I-5 or, or the 405, as the Californians, you know, the, 
It's not, it's not Mexico. And I think, you know, I, I recently covered a trial in, in, uh, in Austin, Texas. It was a trial about the setas. And the interesting thing that I walked away was, you know, two things. One is that in Mexico, we kind of see this as shadowy figures. They don't have a name. They don't have a, <clears throat> you know, a face. And suddenly you're at a U.S. courthouse and you see all this testimony. And there were names, there were, there were numbers, there were faces. Suddenly, it just became very real. And it also showed you know, that maybe thanks to the rule of law here, as imperfect as, as it is, it's, it, it kind of gives you a sense of what it can be in Mexico someday, if, if they had a, an effective rule of law. There's a lot of spillover um, in Puerto Rico right now of the violence, the drug violence. Do you know anything about that? We haven't done a story on Puerto Rico, but, but I mean, it's, it extends everywhere. And, and I think uh, one of the things we're, we're seeing is, is the drug violence, as much as, as President Peñaito says that things are changing, diminishing, you know, he's trying to change the whole narrative in Mexico. Uh, it's almost like nothing happened in, in the last <clears throat> six years. But the, 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 the worry among U.S. officials is that if things diminish or things come down in Mexico, that other places, and we're already seeing it in Central America, things will spike up, as well as, as, as places like Puerto Rico, uh, Dominican Republic. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, it just changes. I mean, the reason why it went to Mexico was because of uh, the 1980s with, with uh, President Reagan. They shut down the Caribbean, and then things started moving to, to Mexico. I'm Mona Pori. I just, um, I had a question of kind of talking about what you were talking about with the current president, and just in, in everything that you've seen, how successful his new approach is, what the new approach is, and your thoughts about it. I actually think he's been very smart about lowering expectations. And, and he, uh, I mean, he keeps telling, you know, um, first, I mean, I'll give you a quick little story about Felipe Calderon. I mean, I think one of, I'm, and I say it in the book, I mean, I, I was kind of forced into covering drug trafficking. And, and again, I, I went against my, my parents' wishes. But we were a bureau of, of, of 12 people, and then suddenly we're one person, and like, you have no choice. You're, you're covering it. But I remember covering uh, Nuevo Laredo and Ciudad Juarez when things were really you know, getting, getting bad. And, and I was wondering, why isn't Vicente Fox doing more? So when Calderon comes in, I was one who thought, wow, finally someone has the courage to stand up. You know? uh, in retrospect, Monday morning quarterback, and you, you feel like, you know, and you talk to US officials and Mexican officials, and they will tell you, we, were, we improvised a strategy. We never really had a strategy. And things just kind of happened. Uh, with, uh, with Peña Nieto, he, he, his focus is really on the economy, the economy, the economy. And there are parts of Mexico, you know, El Bajío, El, uh, central Mexico, where you, you go there and you think, wow, as a reporter, we're really missing this story. I mean, it is a more prosperous country. I mean, things are happening. Um, but I, I think the sense I get from Mexico is that there, there won't be peace without justice. And that sooner or later, he's going to be tested. And something's going to happen. I mean, right now, the situation is, uh, instead of two, three major cartels, just a, a report last week said there are, they, they fragmented or smaller. There's something like 70 uh, smaller cartels. Still, you have the big ones, you know, El Golfo, El, El Sinaloa, uh, <coughs> Juarez, Los Zetas. But it is smaller more manageable. I think that's, that's what they want to believe. But the killings have not really changed that much. Even though Peña Nieto keeps saying, I think the last number was it was 14%, 14% lower than a year ago. 
uh, you talk to experts and they say, you know, it really hasn't changed. We're just not reporting as much. We're not telling those stories as much. Today's Los Angeles Times had an extensive article about an area, I can't pronounce the name, uh, it looked like it was western uh, central Mexico, where uh, the local people had stopped or driven out the cartel, but how? With themselves armed with guns and masks and holding the really almost vigilantism. Is this what's going to have to happen? It is something that's happening in many regions of Mexico where people are, are kind of fed up and they're doing things on their own. Um, we, we've seen it in Chihuahua. We've seen it uh, in parts of Tamaulipas in the past. And, and today, I think the, the, the concern is that this may lead to something else, that, uh, that you may also have the influence of, of drug traffickers. Uh, I, I mean, particularly in a place like, like Michoacan. And there's been a lot of uh, debate about that, you know, whether it's, it's people taking law into their own hands and they're fed up that the, that, that the federal government isn't doing enough, or whether there's also an influence from cartels that through communities they can keep away other cartels from coming in. But it, uh, it's, it's a concern. I mean, one person I talked to recently said, you know, this could lead to something way, wider and greater in, in the coming years. Uh, that's, I mean, one of the things about being on book tour is that uh, you're, you're kind of away from the office and I feel like there's all these stories that uh, I need to get back to. So, your question only re- reminds me that I, I have to get back to work. <laughs> before, I, before I say goodnight, again, I want to thank Socalo. Um, they, uh, I, I've written two pieces for you guys, and, and it's, I was just telling Angela earlier, it always seems like when I write for Socalo, I get such a reaction, uh, Twitter, online, and so forth, that it makes you, it makes you as, a, as a conventional journalist, it makes you realize, you know, there's so much more to do. And, and so I want to I thank you for the, for the support. Um, and I'd be happy to continue the conversation outside. Uh, sign books, or if you have any other questions, con todo gusto. Muchísimas gracias.